And do keep your Bibles open there to Revelation chapter 6, where we'll be spending the next half an hour or so. I'll just get my little timer on so I know what's going on. And uh, we will look at this text together. We're in a series, Matt's already mentioned, uh, in this book of Revelation. And, And let me just remind you how the book began. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, the writer, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Tom, you are blessed. And blessed are those who hear it. That's you guys. And take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. As we read this book, we quickly realize that we're not in the realm of the ordinary. We find weird visions, mysterious creatures and symbols, and strange maths. Revelation asks us to use our imagination. It's a book that is difficult to understand and easy to appreciate. It has inspired generations of artists and frustrated generations of engineers. Sorry, engineers, that was a cheap shot. This book was written in the first century to real people in real places. If you've ever been on holiday to Turkey, you can visit a lot of these places. It was sent round uh, the area called Asia Minor, now Turkey, as a kind of round-robin letter. So there are seven messages at the start of the book to seven different churches, and those are like a covering note to the vision. But bear in mind that everybody read each other's post. You would read what God had said to the Ephesian church, and you'd be thinking, ooh. Then the vision proper began. Chapter 4, we we had a glimpse into the throne room of God itself. The sovereign, one in absolute control. Holy, holy, holy creator. And we heard the song, you are worthy to receive all those things that we just sang about because you created all things. But in chapter 5, we heard a problem. It's a bit like being on an airplane. And somebody's saying, do you want to come and look inside the cockpit? You know, you can't just do that these days. But they go and they, maybe the lead stewardess, and they take you, they open the door to the cockpit and you look inside and there is no pilot. How do you now feel? What happens in chapter 5 is we realize there's no pilot here. God is holding a scroll in his right hand that has the plan, his plan, for the world and for his kingdom. And it's sealed with seven seals. It's totally sealed. But no one is found worthy to open it. And they search everywhere. Nobody's found. And every son or daughter of Adam would turn such power into a disastrous self-serving project. And the writer, John, weeps much. But he's told, cry no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And he looks and sees a lamb bearing the marks of slaughter yet possessing all the wisdom and power of God. This lion lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ, God's son, our savior. After his death on the cross, he was raised to life on the third day. 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand, the place of power, the right hand of God the Father. And he's now appointed to rule as king. Yet he still is the lamb who sympathizes with our weakness. And now in chapter 6, he opens the scroll. 
So what would you expect might happen now? I would expect that everything's going to be made right. That we're all going to join hands. Go up to the park and sing, sing and say, I'd like to teach the world to sing. Because everything's good now. Jesus has got the scroll. He's opened it. You know, your mortgage has been paid off. Hallelujah, everything's gone right. But that is not what happens. It seems that God has other ideas about the future of the world than you and I. And what we find as these seven seals are opened, one after another, is actually a way to understand the world as it really is, but also to know where the world is really going. A way to understand the world as it really is, but also to know where the world is going. And we're going to look at this chapter today in three movements. They are the four horsemen, then the cry of the martyrs, then the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. I just thought I'd sing it because it's in your head anyway. The four horsemen, the cry of the martyrs, and the end of the world as we know it. So look again at chapter 6, verse 1. He watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and he heard one of the living, four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, have you ever seen a horse up close? One of my colleagues here is actually an equestrian, so I know she has. Um, we've just moved here from Manchester, where we lived in a, a, a terraced house built with red bricks, and we had a backyard, not a garden. Most people we knew had backyards. And what could you see out, out of the back window was bricks, and then the neighbor's house. And you could often see your neighbors as well. It's pretty close. We used to have a home group in our house that every week the neighbor would wave through the window to the group, and we'd all wave back. It's different down here in Chesington. This week I was in my shed at the end of the garden studying and I heard a noise behind it and I went out and there was a horse right behind the shed. Down in the country. A few days later, me and Melissa went out to clear some leaves and this horse came right up to us and Melissa went back behind the gate. <laughs> and I was a little bit scared too because horses are so big. Its head was massive. And this horse seemed pretty tame. And Melissa said, well, shall we feed it? What can you feed it? I don't know. From the city. So we gave it three carrots. On the third carrot, I felt the horse's teeth brush my hand. And I thought, oh, the donkey doesn't take my fingers as well. Big, powerful creature. Massive. A little bit scary. And that's not a war horse. This is just someone's horse that they ride around Chesington. Now, as the first four seals are open... The living creatures call out come, and they call forth four colored horses, different colors, and each of them has a terrifying rider. And the colors and what the riders carry or have with them are telling us symbolically what's going on here. The white horse and the rider with the crown suggests conquest and victory. Now, some people have argued that this is a picture of Jesus. Later on in Revelation, Jesus does appear on a white horse, uh, and that's clearly him. But here, the context suggests it's talking about human rulers and human kingdoms. This horse, this rider holds a bow, a hint of the Parthian peoples who lived to the east, the wild men who everyone was afraid of in Rome. They could destroy civilizations. Human history is a story of conquerors and conquest. 
The second horse is fiery red. And out it comes. And the rider is given a large sword. And this suggests warfare and strife. Humankind's desire for dominion is accompanied by a willingness to use violence to gain power. The rider, it says, can take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. The third horse is black, and the rider is holding a pair of scales. And the voice cries out, a kilogram of wheat for a day's wages and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and wine. What's this about? It's suggesting famine and economic injustice. Because these the wheat and barley are the basics of life to make that you can make bread from. And here you'd have to spend a day's wages for a couple of pounds of wheat. That's price gouging. It's even worse than what happened recently when the, uh, the, there was a petrol crisis and the prices went up. This is... you. you you know, you're spending a day's wages on a couple of loaves of bread. But there's still wine and oil. The luxuries are still plentiful, suggesting that the rich continue to get richer as the poor struggle for basics. Economic injustice and famine. The fourth horse is pale. In the original language suggests a kind of green, greenish-gray horse. It looks a bit sickly. And who's following the rider? Death and Hades. The rider's called Death, and Hades is following. And this horse suggests death and decay following on from the previous ways. And it talks about all the various ways people die before their time. Uh, killing by sword and famine and plague by the wild beasts of the earth. And Hades is the, the mythical realm of the dead. And here it is, wide open to receive all these people who died before their time. But notice, will you, in uh, verse 8, that they were given power over a quarter of the earth. Just a quarter. I'll come back to that a little bit later. So what is all this about, the four horsemen of the apocalypse? I'm sure you've heard of them. What is all this about? This is a depiction of human history under God's judgment. And it is true in every generation. A couple of years ago, I read a wonderful book by Simon Jenkins, The Short History of England. It's a terrific book. Simon Jenkins talks about the number of wars that have happened in the history of this small island. In 1340, 700 years ago, hostilities commenced between England and France with a naval battle. The English defeated the French for control of the Channel, and this won freedom to transport an army to France. And some 200 French ships were abandoned as the crews dived overboard to escape a hail of arrows. The sea was so filled with blood that it was said that the fish spoke French. Thus began what was later called the Hundred Years' War. A hundred years of war! It was a terrible time in Europe's history. During the course of that war, the peoples of northern Europe endured a cooling climate, crop failures, famine, and the loss of a third of the population from bubonic plague. Fighting took place largely across northwest France, which were devastated as, as a result. Battle was dominated by two weapons, the French cannon and the English longbow, supplemented by a third deadly enemy, dysentery, which many of the soldiers caught. The longbow was up to six feet in length, and it had a draw strength of 200 pounds. 
It required immense shoulders, and it actually altered the skeletal frame of the people that fired the bow. A lot of them, the Welsh archers were renowned, so strong. They could outshoot the crossbow. They could fire 10 arrows a minute and penetrate conventional armor 200 yards away. This is the 14th century. They could fire 10 arrows and penetrate armor over there. Now, you know, that, some of that could have been straight out of Revelation, couldn't it? Plague and famine and death. And I've only used one little bit of history from this small island in France from 700 years ago. Just think about the bloodshed and misery that human beings have wreaked upon each other in every generation. Now, there's a genuine question that some of you are asking, which we ought to ask. Why does God allow this to happen? After all, if God is all-powerful and all-wise, as, as we believe in the Bible, and he is a God of love, why does he allow such things to continue in his creation? Why does he allow them and judge them? Now, these questions are so important, and we must ask them. They stop some people from coming to faith. And they cause sincere believers to have terrible doubts. And if you're a person who's doubting here today, with these, wrestling with these questions, I'm so glad you're here. We want you to ask questions. We want to engage. And I don't want to give superficial answers. I don't have much time, but I'll suggest a couple of lines along which we can think. Firstly, notice from our text that although God is in control, he's in the throne room, he does not directly cause these things to happen. Look at the language of Revelation, uh, verse six, chapter 6, verse 2. The rider held a bow and he was given a crown. Verse 4, the rider was given power to take peace from the earth. Was given. Not that God gave it to them, but they were given it. There's some distance between God and what's happening here in the world. It is not God who calls the horses out. It's the living creatures. Now, this hints at a tension in the Bible between what God wants, what he wills, and what he permits. They're different things. You might say God's a bit complicated. Sometimes uh, theologians talk about the two wills of God. God has a will of decree. There are things that God decrees will happen and should happen and must happen, and they always happen without fail. But God also has a will of permission. There are things that God permits to happen that he would not cause, he would not want. God sometimes permits things that he hates in order to achieve a far greater purpose. But God never causes anyone to sin. The American preacher and pastor John Piper says, in God's great and mysterious heart, there are kinds of longings and desires that are real, they tell us something that's true about his character. Yet not all of these longings govern God's actions. He is governed by the depth of his wisdom, expressed through a plan that no ordinary human deliberation would ever conceive. And I'm surely the greatest example of this kind of tension is the cross of Jesus Christ, the most wicked, vile, action in human history where the truly innocent one was absolutely betrayed and smashed on a cruel cross and took upon him all the weight of sin and judgment. A, a horrible thing, a terrible thing. And yet in God's mysterious plan, the greatest and, and best thing that ever happened. 
There's a mystery here. Secondly, notice that God creates human beings as responsible moral agents who make real choices. That's how we're made. I think we all rather like being responsible people who can make our own choices, don't we? Imagine if God had made us into puppets or robots made of meat. We could only do what we were programmed to do or what the strings God was pulling made us to do. That is not how he has made human beings. He has given us dignity and choice. We are moral agents. But having given us our humanity, God allows us plenty of latitude You have a lot of freedom. And if we choose pride, if we choose dominion, greed, injustice, self-serving projects, actions that lead to decay, that's on us. Don't blame God for it. Now, most people who argue that God ought to step in and stop all the wrong in the world don't calculate that if he did that, he'd also have to step into your life and stop everything you're doing that's wrong without giving you any choice. But the Bible tells us that God gives us plenty of time to make our own choices and that he is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to saving faith. However, the scriptures also warn us that this situation will not go on forever. God will not let it. His kingdom will come. His will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven, and he will deal with all the suffering and all the injustice. Jesus' cross and resurrection are a guarantee of that. So, a a couple of answers there. Just a gesture, really, in in the direction of this question, serious question, why does God allow all this? Now, what are we uh, supposed to take away from the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Uh, I'm just imagining someone at the water cooler at work tomorrow morning, if you still go to, to work. Maybe you're in your office on Zoom. Someone says, what did you do yesterday? Well, we heard a sermon about the four horsemen of the apocalypse Oh, okay. Religious, weird. (laughs) I think what we're supposed to take away is this. Although such things are happening in our world, they have not taken God by surprise. Our God is far bigger than any of those tyrants, those evil empires, those disasters, or even death itself. It is all part of his good, glorious plan. I may not fully understand his purposes, but who am I? He's got it in hand. We're in good hands. That's the four horsemen. The second movement in this passage is the cry of the martyrs. The cry of the martyrs. Look with me at verse 9, please. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, who are these people? They are martyrs. They are those whose lives have been taken from them because they followed Jesus. The people who got this letter, the very first recipients, were in a world where that could happen. Various stages in the Roman Empire, Christians were given tolerance or oppressed, persecuted, and it could vary a great deal depending on where you lived. One of the churches that read this letter had had a church member killed. So this is real for them. 
So what happens to these martyrs, those who've given their, whose life has been taken from them because they've followed Jesus? They are present with God in heaven, in the heavenly throne room. And you know what? They are welcome to interrupt the service. We've had that amazing vision. The, 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 the praise, the glory, the, 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 just the shining out of God and all the creatures and the elders and the creation bowing down and singing. And there in the midst of it are these people complaining. And they're crying out. And you know what this shows us? God loves to hear from his people. We heard in a previous chapter that they have bowls with the prayers of the saints in them. God hears our prayers in heaven and here he hears the voices of those whose lives have been taken and their cry is, how long, O Lord? Now, we need to ask, when is all this taking place? When is it taking place? And there's considerable debate among Christians about how to interpret the events in the middle of Revelation. Some people argue that what we're seeing is all going to take place in the future. It's called the futurist position. They claim that all these things will happen in a sequence at some point in the future, so we're waiting for that time. Now, other people argue, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, that all of this actually took place in the first century, and the readers knew what had happened because it all tied up to events in their lifetime. And so they understood their own historical context. Now, our third position, a third way of reading Revelation, which is the one I largely take, is that these events are linked to real history, but they're not with a one-to-one -one correspondence. And Christians have done this for hundreds of years and, and, and come up with some really nutty interpretations of Revelation. So in any generation, they say, ah, oh, who's the Antichrist? Well, it's Adolf Hitler, good candidate. What about Chairman Mao? Uh, what about somebody Soviet? And, and so they find some, some Antichrist person and attach it to it. And what, and what kind of a battle could it be? And so they link it all. And, and really, there are going to be wars, Antichrists and martyrs, but that's happening in every generation. So we would be unwise to try and pin our understanding of Revelation on specific events in our history. But notice that this does relate to real history. We can see, can't we, even in English history, that there, these, these things have happened and are happening. And notice, too, that in the book there is an intensification as history progresses. Now, we've just thought about the first five seals and we know the seven seals. And after the seven seals are opened, we then get the seven trumpets. And seven trumpets are blown, and each time something happens. And after the seven trumpets, there are seven bowls. And when these bowls are poured out, something happens. And so there's sequences of seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. But there's similarities for, with, with each of them. There's seven of each. They, each of them, when they come to the sixth one, it looks very like we're on the brink of the end of the world. Then there's a significant pause, and then the end of the world comes, final judgment. So there's a hint there in the way that this is put together, that this is looking at it again from a different perspective. Recap. Recapitulation. First of all, we look at history from the point of view of the seven seals, then the seven trumpets, then the seven bowls. But... There's an intensification through the, the timeline of Genesis. So with the seven trump seals, the rider is given power over a quarter of the earth. With the seven trumpets, power is given over a third of the earth. 
from a quarter to a third. And with the bowls, the bowls indicate total, final destruction. So there's an intensification through the book even as we go through the recap. Are you still with me? Two of you are. That's great. I'll take two. So think of Revelation from now on as a kind of whirlpool. It's going round and round. It's going over the same ground. But it's not just going round and round. It's also going deeper and deeper and more and more intense as the events come to a climactic point, which they will. Because there will be a day when God returns, Jesus returns and stops the clock and sets everything to, to rights. Spoiler alert, that's how the Bible ends. So what about now? Where are we in this story? Daniel Philpott is a professor of political science at Notre Dame University, writes, more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined, according to two of the world's leading religious demographers. The trend has not abated in this century, the last 20 years. The statistics are uncertain, but it seems likely that the number of Christians killed for their faith every year almost certainly lies in the thousands and possibly tens of thousands every year. According to the International Society for Human Rights, Christians are estimated to make up 80% of those who are persecuted for their religion. 80%. They have been killed in India, Vietnam, Iraq, Colombia, Pakistan, Nigeria, Mexico, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Sri Lanka, China, and Indonesia. That's our brothers and sisters. John Allen points out two-thirds of the 2.3 billion Christians in the, t in the world today live in dangerous neighborhoods. They're often poor. They often belong to ethnic, linguistic, and cultural minorities, and they are often at risk. Does Revelation speak to reality? How long, O oh Lord? You know, most of us live very comfortable lives in this part of Surrey and South London. We're still living in a culture that's been shaped profoundly by centuries of Christian civilization. Now, although that is declining rapidly, we still enjoy the fruits, tolerance, peace, free speech, freedom to worship, high standards in public life, corruption shouldn't be tolerated. You know, these things come from a Christian civilization. Most people in the world today and most people in history have enjoyed very few of these things. History is progressing, and opposition to the kingdom of God is intensifying. Can't we see that? In the church Melissa and I were at for the last 12 years, we befriended and then partnered with an Indian man from South India who went to North India to the Hindu heartlands to share the good news. He, he went on his own. He was single, and he had, all he had was a bike. So he would cycle to a village and knock on one door after another and say to people, have you ever heard about Jesus? And some people would say, no, he must live in the next village. True story. 
Our church heard about this and people said, come on, let's buy him a motorbike. So we did that. And as the years have gone by, Daniel has grown. Uh, he's now married and he's used his motorbike and, and they've formed little churches. Actually through youth, youth and children's work. That's how it began. And then people have slowly come to faith. And literally these are people who've never heard of Jesus and, and nobody they'd ever met had heard of Jesus. It's what's called unreached. He told me last year of a woman who visited one of their services, just visited it. And she went home and her family found out and they tried to set her on fire. If you get baptized in a place like that, you are putting your head on the block. Friends, let us not squander the freedom we have to worship God. Is our life so full that going to church twice on Sunday is an imposition? Huh. Let's be aware, shall we, of the persecuted church and pray for our brothers and sisters. These martyrs cry out, how long? And they also cry for vengeance. Ooh. Yes, look at it again. They cry in a loud voice, verse 10, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the world and avenge our blood. Is that unchristian? Now, some have argued so. Surely Jesus taught us to, to live in peace with the world and, and to, to pray for our enemy and those who persecute us and bless them. And absolutely, absolutely, Christians have been champions of nonviolence. But, in light of reflections from his homeland, Croatia, Miroslav Volf, theologian, argues that nonviolence, to practice nonviolence, requires that you believe in divine vengeance. We can refuse vengeance on other people because we know that God will take care of it in the end. He says that this belief will be unpopular with many Christians, especially those in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone which he had done. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Imagine that you try and persuade them that we should not retaliate since God is perfect love and he will forgive everyone. Soon you will discover it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of such an idea. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will not survive. You know, we can not take vengeance. We can love our enemies because we know God is going to set it right. God will judge. So the word to the martyrs is wait. Wait for his coming. And they're given a white robe that symbolizes that they will conquer. And it also shows they've been purified. Now, with the sixth seal, we come to the brink of the end, the end of the world as we know it. Remember, we've had the four horsemen, the martyrs cry, now the end of the world as we know it. And here it is in verse 12, if you want to turn the page. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs 
dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. You know, if it looks like the end of the world and it sounds like the end of the world, it probably is the end of the world. We had an image in chapter 4 of God sitting enthroned in heaven and there's a, a sea like crystal in front of him as he looks down through the heavens. It's all pictorial. It, you know, you don't think of it as physical, but he looks down and here the heavens are split, rolled back. Something similar happened when Jesus was baptized. The heavens were split and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And here the heavens are rolled back. And, and it's, it's like the, the lights are being turned out. You know, the stars are falling and the moon's gone to blood. And the whole of creation is shaken. And all of this is imagery drawn from the Old Testament. The book of Joel is a particular place, Joel 2, and other places. Isaiah, Haggai, and it looks like the end of the world. And what will people do at that time? There will be absolute terror. Verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, everyone else, both slave and free, as everybody, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now there, all those who had power, and implicitly, based on what we've read so far, they may well have used it to serve themselves, now realize how small and impotent they really are. And they try and hide. How desperate you would have to be to, 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 to hide in a cave and ask a mountain to fall on you. They're exposed. This is an image of God's judgment as exposure. Of peeling back and seeing what's really there. In the eyes of a holy, holy God. Now what Revelation is teaching us is we should praise God for his judgment. Why? Because we need it. You actually know this. Imagine that somebody committed a crime against you. You know, that's a horrible crime. A woman attended our church in Manchester whose son woke up one night to find that his car, which he loved, it was his beautiful car, was being stolen by three men. He went downstairs. He was a strong man, army, army background to stop them taking their car, and they ran him over. They reversed and ran him over again, crushing his ribcage and killing him, and drove off in his car. Now imagine that such a thing had been done, and those people had been brought to the court of law, and the evidence was heard, and the judge said, well, I've heard the case, and I'm just going to let them off this time. You know, they've had a hard life. And there's some economic factors here. And they got carried away on the evening. You know, they didn't really plan to kill him. Imagine what we would say if such a thing was done by a judge. We'd be screaming bloody murder. We want justice. We want it. And that's us. So how would we expect that God, who is absolutely pure and loves his world, would be any less insistent on justice than we are. We want justice, and this is telling us that it will come. It will come. And yet, if everything is going to be exposed, what would happen to you and me on that final day? If everything was exposed, I just want to imagine we've got these two big screens here, 
that uh, somebody has compiled a video of your whole life on it for us all to see. Every unkind thought will be on this video. Every cruel word, every lie, every word of gossip, the horrible desires of your heart, every secret, every, every impure motive. Just imagine that what you have looked at on the internet this year is projected on this screen. Would you stay to the end of the service? We couldn't bear to be exposed like that, could we? And that's just in front of people. Imagine being exposed like that in front of the maker of all things, the, the loving creator, and the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the one who took our sins on himself. Exposure. And so the, the, the chapter ends with this question. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Who can stand? And I'm going to finish now. Because we need to feel the weight of these things. We come back next week, and we find out there is a way you can stand. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We are undone when we look into your word and we see our reflection like a mirror. And it calls us out even as we were thinking about other people. Thank you that you have told us the truth. Thank you that you are great. That there is justice in this universe. That your kingdom will come. Amen.